Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, I'd get defensive about the Rockets, but that just confuse them because they don't understand defense these days. And we're going to talk about that. We look back on a Texan season, which was exactly what we thought it'd be. And we discuss a terrible couple of breaks for Coog basketball dreams. Joining me for the first time in over three weeks is my co-host, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Curran. Stephen, it's been way, way too long, brother. Yeah, good to see you, Robert. I haven't seen you since last year. Man, that seems like a long time ago. It's only been three weeks, obviously, as you said. But, you know, the, the sports world still turns, whether we're here or not. So <laughs> I know we have plenty to talk about. In the 24 days since you and I last convened the Texans... Won one game. The Rockets won two. In other words, business as usual. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I guess a lot has happened, but nothing has really changed, has it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to get to the Texans a little bit later in the show. I'd like to start with the Rockets. And by the way, even though it's been a while since Stephen and I were together, I hope everybody caught my hour-long podcast with Clutch fans David Hardesty. If you missed it, go back and listen because the conversation won't be too dated. The topics were big picture, 10,000 feet views of the players and the organization. And, you know, Stephen, one thing I'd like to take back slightly that I said, you know, David said he's really enjoying watching the team this year. I agreed with David, but I should have put a caveat. There's some really fun moments with Jalen's athleticism or Shane Goon's incredible passing. However, just far too many 20-point blowouts by halftime, meaningless fourth quarters, extended garbage time. I don't mind losing and watching development, but blowouts aren't fun, and it's hard to learn much about players when it's garbage time. Yeah, and, and that's really been my gripe, Robert. And, and I'll be honest, I, I've had fits and starts when it comes to watching the Rockets this year. And, you know, the biggest problem is from one game to the next, you, you just never know. I mean, you've, you've talked about the number of blowouts, and it's alarming. And it was, you know, it was like this last year. But then you have the Spurs game, which they played Wednesday night, and they actually won the game. It was 128 to 124. So, you know, it was a, a pretty exciting game and all in all. But, you know, when you're such a young team and you're in rebuild mode, you just never know what to expect from one day to the next. I mean, obviously, that's sports in general. But especially with a team like the Rockets and, you know, hey, you could throw the Texans in there, too. You just, <laughs> you know, one game to the next. It, it's just that it, that's the only thing is that it's never boring. You, you never really know what to expect. But there have been way too many blowouts and just so much inconsistency that it is frustrating when you're as big a rocket fans as you and I are. Yeah. It just sucks to lose close games, but at the same time you want to at least be entertained when you're watching the games. <laughs> well, and here's the thing, Robert. No, yeah. Nobody likes to lose. It, it's as heartbreaking to, to lose a, you know, a one thirty to one twenty nine game. But I, I think really when you think about it, it's, it's starting to build character when you lose close games because it, it at least gets you used to playing close games. But when you're getting blown out by 15, 20, 25 points, game after game after game, I mean, it's just, it's disheartening to a team. I don't care how great an athlete you are or even what level you're playing at, even if you're professionals and you're making a lot of money. Nobody likes to lose like that night after night. So even if they lose close games, if they could just be in close games, you hope that at some point they'll get more battle tested and they'll figure it out. We talked about the Rockets' defense, or I talked about it and joked about it at the start of the show. The defense, you mentioned it. They showed up a little bit against the Spurs Wednesday night, but as all of you know, that was the outlier. And, Stephen, this doesn't feel like a talent issue. Although Wood and Tice aren't exactly great backline defenders, this isn't an effort issue most nights. This is about young guys not communicating, not understanding where they're supposed to be, not being on the same page. And I'll just point out that Oklahoma City, they're pretty young too, but they're 19th in defensive efficiency. Detroit is young. They're 22nd. Stephen, the Rockets are dead last. Well, again, Robert, I, and I never try to put complete blame on the coaching, but I, I think some of this does have to do with the coaching. I think it's their responsibility to get these guys in sync with each other. And, and yeah, chemistry takes time, obviously, with guys as young as they are. I get it. But there there does need to be an emphasis, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about the defensive side of the game. Everybody loves to shoot the ball, you know, and in some cases, everybody likes to pass the ball. But it's getting back in transition. It's doing those little things on defense that 
really make the difference. And it's going to make this team a great team if that's what they're going to be. And that's just what the Rockets lack right now is that consistency. It's hard to really know what is going on behind the scenes with Steven Silas. But what you would like to see as you're trying to evaluate him is you want to see somebody that is overachieving with the talent that he's got. And I, I, I can throw out last season and what happened last year because that was just such a mess with the virus going on and all of the injuries and the hardened circus and everything like that. We totally give him a mulligan on that. But I, I guess, you know, I, I want to see this coach that, you know, you go, wait a second, how is he getting this many wins or how is he getting this much out of these guys with, you know, the talent that's there or the youth that's there or something like that? You know, that that's all I'm asking for. Well, I mean, he's known for his offensive scheme, certainly. Um, but the, the defense has to play a part in it, too. And, you know, that's how you win games and really in any sport is that you've got to have the kind of defense that can get you there. You know, I'm not trying to compare apples to oranges here, but, you know, you, you look at the Texans and the kind of talent that they don't have, and you go, well, all right, regardless of who's coaching the team, what's going to happen there? But with the Rockets, they do have some talent. I mean, it's obvious they have talent. It just needs to be developed. And I'm just wondering, you know, from the long term, is, is Steven Silas the guy that can really shape this team into the type of team that within a couple of years maybe – that they could be a solid team in the playoffs. I, I just, I'm not convinced of that yet. I, I just haven't seen anything that makes me go, wow, you know, this, this is this is where the team's going to be headed and this is the guy to lead them. We're seeing development with some of the young players and I'm going to get to that. The, individually, you like some of what you're seeing because Josh Christopher, you know, looking really good and, and we'll get to him. But w- one of my pet peeves that I hear from fans and, and media when they're covering the NBA is you're, Man, they're playing hard. There's a lot of praise on the Rockets broadcast regarding the effort or how hard they're playing. You hear it elsewhere, too. In my, in my opinion, it's ridiculous to talk about effort in the NBA or, or in the NFL, for that matter. Playing hard should be a given, especially when you're referencing the Rockets or Texans with young players trying to prove they can stay in the league and have a career. Playing smart Playing smart is how you win, Stephen. That's what I want to hear emphasized. Well, you know what? That's exactly right. And we always hear the term the term working hard, uh, you know, playing hard. But it, I think there's another old saying is not necessarily working harder, but working smarter. And, uh, you know, when you play smarter, as you were talking about, that's when you make fewer mistakes, you know, and, and that's when you start getting the scheme that you want to have. And, and yeah, the rock, I, I, I can't believe that these guys are going out there night after night after night and giving a half effort. I mean, maybe the blowouts make it look that way. I certainly don't believe that is the case. You know, now, obviously, when you're when you're losing as much as this team is, it is hard to get up night after night after night. I, I think I understand that. But to say that these guys aren't playing hard, I, I think would be unfair. But as you said, it's about playing smarter because you have fewer turnovers when you play smarter. You know, you, you make fewer mistakes and you start getting the schemes down more when you play smarter. And that's just something the Rockets haven't quite figured out yet. But I, I know that they're working on it. So the effort is there. The results just aren't as consistent as I think we'd like them to be. And the reason that you do need to play smarter beyond the obvious is when you have a young team they're going to be a little bit more tired than normal. And you go, well, shouldn't young guys have more energy? Yes and no. I mean, yeah, they're younger, so maybe they should be able to bounce back a little bit easier. But this is a totally different experience, Stephen, when you're playing in the NBA and you're hitting back-to-backs that you didn't have to deal with in college or you know, in high school or whatever. And you've got much higher competition coming at you. So it's like, well, yeah, they're they're younger, but they're not facing – college-level guys anymore, they're facing NBA-level guys. Well, that's right. And here's the thing is, you know, by now, they've already played more games in a season than they would have in college or in high school. Or, you know, some of them, of course, have been in the G League if they didn't go to college. But, you know, that's the thing is that they're playing more games. They're not used to that kind of thing. Their body's not used to it. And it's also a mental thing. You know, we talk a lot about physical talent. But mental toughness has to play a part in it. And this is the pros. I mean, these, these, you're playing against some of the best guys in the world, honestly. You know, even the most lower-tiered NBA player is better than a lot of players around the world. So there are just a lot of factors you have to consider 
that these guys have to get used to each other and they has, have to get used to the level and style of play that is the NBA and condition both their bodies and their minds to play the kind of games that, you know, the number of games you got, what, 80, you know, 81, 82 games. And then the playoffs, if you make those, you have the preseason games before that. So it's a lot different dynamic and it's hard for us to be patient, Robert. Let's face it. We're fans. You know, we we may be podcasting, but we're fans. We admit it. So it's hard to be patient, but it's just one of the things that you just have to do when you're following a team that's as young as this team is. Positives. Let's go to those. Two Rockets players appear to be turning a corner in the last couple of weeks. Josh Christopher and Jalen Green. Love what I'm seeing. The improvement isn't linear, and they've had an off game here and there, but when I watch them play, I see more aggressiveness, more confidence, and more consistency. And here's the thing on Jalen. He needs to instigate things more on offense. I love what I saw against the Spurs, Stephen, because Silas went back to staggering the minutes between him and Porter, which allows Jalen to start the offense. And it's funny because you know, Jackson Gatlin brought it up in the pregame. Jackson, our friend over with Locked On Rockets, about what happened to staggering these guys. And Silas said after the game, well, I, I was kind of snickering when you said that in the back of my head because I knew I was going to do that. My question, and this is just my, this is my frustration with Silas, is that he does something and it works, and then he goes back to doing what he was doing before that wasn't work. But I guess I want to get away from Silas a little bit and just – give compliments to Jalen Green. And, and I'm really excited to see, you know, we, we're, we're finally seeing that corner turned. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons the Rockets got him is is to be that that kind of starter, you know, that to jumpstart the offense. That's, you know, that's what he's supposed to be known for. And, you know, we were hoping when he came back from the injury that maybe he had a chance to sit and learn some things. And in general, what I really enjoy is that the Rockets, especially in the Spurs game, you know, when they're driving to the basket and they're playing fast like they were, that's when they seem to have the success. And Jalen Green has been a big part of that. You can talk about his shooting, although it wasn't good against the Spurs. And, you know, we've seen some improvements there. But the big thing with Jalen is he's going to the basket more. I just want to see him continue to go to the basket, attack the basket, figure out how to finish around the rim. It's going to be a little bit harder for him because he doesn't have the body yet of a, a big NBA player. He's super skinny, super light in the loafers. But that's the thing that you want to see is go to the basket, figure out how to draw fouls, because that's where I think Jalen goes from, okay, he's a, maybe he got some potential. He's an exciting rookie. We see the dunks and, and the open floor and all that stuff and then the fast break stuff. But the real potential is, can this guy get to the basket? Can he draw fouls? Can he finish around the rim? Because with this athleticism, he's going to be able to get by guys. We know that. Well, and he does clearly need to bulk up. And I, I don't know how much more he can and will do that. But that would certainly help his game more, too. But, yeah, love the fast play. I mean, that that is definitely playing to his strength. There's no question about that. Now, Josh Christopher is just a revelation. It's been a real surprise that... He is not only playing in the NBA, which we thought he was going to be a G leaguer, but his improvement just seems to be moving forward at a much more rapid pace than any of us would have projected. And the one thing that I can say about Josh Christopher from the beginning is he was bringing it every night. He was bringing the energy. He was bringing the aggressiveness, but you know, he's getting smarter. Uh, it, it's getting more consistent. Uh, the shot is way better than we ever thought it would be. And I, I, we've mentioned that, I'm sure, but um, continues to be something that you look at and you, there's hope that, you know, this guy's going to turn into a really good shooter. And it looks like, Stephen, that he's just already better than Kevin Porter Jr. Because what I see from Kevin Porter, with all due respect to what he did at the end of the Spurs game, you know, he shows you those fits and spurts. But the problem with Porter is consistency whereas Christopher he's consistent that's one of the things that Silas brought up in the post game after the Spurs win was you know what I have done with Josh Christopher I couldn't have done if I didn't think he could go out there and do things on a consistent basis I kept hearing a lot of excitement when the Rockets drafted Josh Christopher just you know how much potential this guy has and of course I I, I always tend to err on the side of caution when I hear about how much potential a player has, especially as one as young as Christopher, because 
you know, how many guys have we seen flame out because they just didn't quite develop that potential? But yeah, you're seeing that in Josh Christopher. And I, I could see this guy being a sixth man. Is he going to be a great player? I don't know. But I think he'd be a great role player, certainly in the scheme of things that the Rockets are building. And he's really showing that, at least right now. The thing about Christopher that we knew coming out of college was, you know, the shot was going to take some time. But he had the athleticism of a top 10 or top 15 guy coming out of high school. And just having that athleticism makes you go, okay, what what could he do on the next level? Because sometimes, Stephen, you know this, in college, there's uh, there's just some limitations because the court gets shrunk there. You don't have the big three-point line. And I think sometimes you look at a guy that he can't show everything that he really can do in college uh, because of that, or because it's going to be able to really open up his entire game once he gets to the NBA level. Yeah, and that's really what's going to help. And and I think that's, again, that's where the coaching comes into play. And you've talked about certain individuals developing, and Josh Christopher is one of them. Now you just got to put all this together into a cohesive unit. And, and that's where I think that it's, it's going to be the biggest challenge for the Rockets moving forward. But Christopher is, you know, we've talked about him several times on this podcast. It just, you know, every game he keeps doing something better. Anything else that, you know, in the last three weeks that has struck you with the Rockets particular player or just what's going on in general? Eric Gordon, he continues to, I, I mean, I, I hate to say surprise me because we shouldn't be surprised. We, we know the talent of Eric Gordon, but gosh, I just keep crossing my fingers every game that he can stay healthy because he's really been, you, you talk about the, the veteran leadership that the Rockets desperately need. Well, it's coming from Eric Gordon and just the way he's been playing, his offense has been good. And he's staying healthy at the moment. You got to keep it going, Eric. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm really glad to see that you know Eric is is playing the way he is. That's really the only concern as far as his trade value is the health issue. And you want to get him out of here, and get yeah. that uh, get that uh, capital back as as quickly as possible because you just never know if he goes down or he has some sort of extended injury. All of a sudden, you know, pe- people might look at him around the NBA and go, well. You know, I, I don't know if he's going to be ready for us at the end of the year. The, the big benefit of that contract that he's got, Stephen, is when you trade for him, this isn't an, an expiring. That's why you're hoping the, the Rockets can get something out of this because they do have a player that you that you got for a year and a half. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's a really cool thing when you're you're trying to trade for a guy. It's not like, oh, this is a, a six month rental. Well, that's right. And, and I mean, you know, we've been talking about this, what, for the last two or three years about trading Eric Gordon, and the biggest thing was his contract. Well, you know, it's getting to the point now where that's not an issue. And the fact is that I, I think Eric Gordon is playing better now, certainly, than he was last year, year before. But again, it, it, it's, it's all about consistency. You know, if you're staying in there and you're not getting hurt as much and, and you're the kind of player that Eric Gordon is, you're, you're going to see this type of play. And as you said, though, we just need to keep our fingers crossed that it can continue throughout the rest of the season. Or if they are going to trade him at the trade deadline, that you find a deal for him. But he, he's the one player that I've just, I'm really rooting for, you know, to keep moving forward because he's certainly helping this team stay where it is and keep going. And the illness that is the Rockets free throw shooting has also worn off on Eric Gordon because it's weird to see him shooting in the low 70s after, you know, this guy's been a really good free throw shooter his entire career, just a good shooter in general. I, I'm just like, what's going on with Eric Gordon at the free throw line? We saw it late in the Spurs game. You know, I, I just free throw shooting has always been such a mystery to me. I'd love to pick the brain of a sports psychologist and, and just find out, you know, what is it about free throw shooting that some guys just have so much trouble with it? And especially at the end of games, you know, it's just like, I guess a, a kicker in football, you can kind of liken it to it. You've got that, that moment, especially toward the end of the game, where you've got to make these free throws and the pressure's on you and you're either going to thrive under the pressure or you're going to crumble. But it's a consistent thing, too, throughout the whole game. You've got to do it. So, yeah, it is a puzzle and, and that has made or broken, I guess you could say, the Rockets in some of these games. But at least, you know, in the Spurs game, didn't seem to matter. They They did come through when they had to. More good news. Shane Goon's coming back soon. So we're going to have a lot of Rockets stuff to evaluate as the season goes along. We're going to get more into that. But let's move to the Texans who finished the season 4-13. and Speaking of evaluation, we, we got to do that a little bit. They get two wins over the Jags this year, two huge upsets 
over the Chargers and Titans were four days after the end of the regular season. And apparently, as you and I sit here and talk, Stephen, just uh, 9.30 in the morning on a Thursday, there's still a question whether David Culley is coming back. The Texans' decision-making off the field is about as quick and assured as it is on the field. Yeah. Can we evaluate the Texans evaluation process? I I think that's what we need to do. Um, You know, first of all, and of course I, I say this, you know, we could put this up and something could happen, but at this moment, my question becomes, you've had 11 months to evaluate David Culley. How does it take four more days when, when you see at least half a dozen other teams the day after the season or even even the last day of the regular season firing their coaches. I mean, that, that's what they did. They, they've known throughout the last few weeks that things are not working. So I don't know. It, it, is it because they think, well, there there is potential with Cully. We've got to keep him in there. Is that what they're taking so long? They just want to make sure they're making the right decision. But none of it makes sense, Robert. I mean, look, 4-13 and 13 is not a good record. But did we really expect them I'm trying to remember at the beginning of the season, Robert, did we expect them to win more than two games? I don't think so. And when you consider the talent that they have around them, you know, they they started with Tyrod Taylor. He gets hurt. You put Davis Mills in, who had 11 games of college experience, and it was so dreadful. When you think about how dreadful this team was after Taylor got hurt and throughout the parts of the season, I don't know. I mean, 4-13, and 13, honestly, to some degree— it almost makes you think that they exceeded some of those expectations. And when you think of the talent that they have, so let's give Coley another year. Let's get some players around him. Let's get some good draft picks and let's see what happens. And and maybe that's what how it'll turn out to be. Yeah, I guess I thought I had figured it out. It looked like Cully was this cheap guy that when I say cheap, you know, money wise, and you, you just weren't going to want to spend a whole lot on a coach that you're not sure is going to be coaching a team with any sort of talent for a couple of years because the rebuild we knew was going to take at least three years probably to get even sort of going. And you thought, well, he's just a a puppet in place. I don't know what could have happened outside of that. There's this conversation that, well, he wanted to bring Tim Kelly back and he likes Tim Kelly and maybe they weren't super happy about Tim Kelly. It's interesting, Stephen, because... Kelly acted so sure that Tim Kelly was coming back. And, and I, I don't think that's a, a just Kelly decision. I think Casario and Kelly have to get together on that. But Stephen, have we been too hard on Tim Kelly? Let's think about it. Davis Mills looked like the second best rookie quarterback in the league. He had crummy running backs, junk and backups at the offensive line positions and not much in the way of receiving talent outside of Cooks. Maybe, just maybe, we're a little too rough on him. Yeah, I think at some point you have to talk about the talent that you have around you. You have a, a patchwork offensive line that just looked you know, like it was in an amateur league or something. And you're, you're talking about the development of Davis Mills that starts from a guy that had so little experience compared to other quarterbacks who come into the NFL. I, I think you've got to give some credit, to, especially toward the end of the season, to Tim Kelly you know, and, and to the quarterback's coach and, and everyone else around, you know, the offensive coaching staff for developing Davis Mills the way he has. Look, if the Texans could get another Will Fuller, you know, DeAndre Hopkins type of receiver, you know, to go along with some of the core that they already have and, and get a running back, you know, honestly, the running game is really going to be the big thing, Robert, because if you're just going to totally rely on Davis Mills to get it done in the passing game, that that's not going to work consistently. So I think you have to give Tim Kelly some credit. Absolutely. And that's why I say, why not, you know, get some more talent around David Culley and the coaching staff for the most part. I mean, the offensive line is just, again, a huge question mark. They have got to build that up. But let's get these, you know, get some guys around Davis Mills and see what he can do. You don't have a lot of great quarterbacks in this draft. So why not use some of these top draft picks? And if, if, let's say, Deshaun is traded, and I know we'll get to Deshaun in a bit, you know, you, you can use some of these picks, these early picks, maybe to get an offensive line around this guy and a running back in some of the, the mid to later rounds and see what happens next year. Yeah, absolutely. I think Tim Kelly deserves some credit. My frustration with Tim Kelly this year has been just some basic stuff where guys don't know where they're supposed to line up on the 
lie in a scrimmage and you have penalties because of that consistently, that's coaching and you would think that's an offensive coordinator. Uh, that That's his job. And, and also uh, with Kelly, you, you wanted to see him move Davis Mills out of the pocket better because he looked better when he was moving out of the pocket. You wanted to see him throwing the ball downfield more because Davis Mills has been incredibly accurate on downfield throws if you look at the numbers. So if there is some frustration, I, I guess that's it. But also, you know, how confident was he at moving Mills out of the pocket when this offensive line can't handle the basic stuff? So can they handle like a moving pocket? Can Davis, as a rookie, handle, hey, I need to wait a little bit longer because uh, I'm throwing the ball down the field where there are times that Mills had opportunities or there were play calls that was uh, set up to go down the field, but he didn't do it with, without being in the room. You don't know. We can say on one end this, but on the other end that, and that's the issue. And Tim Kelly looked pretty good when he had Deshaun. the Sean, the offense was not the problem last year when they were losing games left and right. The defense let's remember was the problem. That was in a complete and total disaster behind Anthony Weaver. Yeah, it certainly was. And the defense has gotten better. And I think you said it. I mean, you've got to have confidence, enough confidence in your offensive line if you're going to talk about moving out of the pocket and and allowing Davis Mills to play to his strengths. And I think, you know, a faster pace for him, go with a no huddle a little more often, that seemed to work for him. So I think that's one thing that Tim Kelly needs to evaluate during the offseason. You know, how much more can they play to Davis Mills' strengths and and then get some guys in there, you know, a better offensive line where you can move him out of the pocket more. And as far as, you know, the, the penalties, I mean, a lot of those were on the offensive line. And, you know, it sounds like we're making excuses here. But when you're talking, when you're shuttling guys in and out like that, that's where the chemistry comes in and the timing. That's where a lot of those penalties, I think, were. Yeah, there were some of them that were on the receivers, you know, and the running backs. But, man, a lot of those were the offensive line, all those false starts and things of that nature. You know, I think that that just comes with a more cohesive offensive line where you've got guys in there that know each other better. You're hoping that that's what's going to happen. But, of course, if you're going to get more new guys in next year, you may you may end up having the same problem. So, yeah, I just think, you know, the offense just needs to get better talent around it, and then you can start worrying about playing to strengths. I just checked, and Cully hasn't been fired yet. All right. So, <laughs> you know, and what time is it, Robert, that we're recording this? It's about 9.37 as, as you and I are sitting here. All right, so, so let's keep that in mind. We're, we're, that's when we're recording this. So we're, we're, all of this talk that we're doing is based on that. The Texans will get the third pick in the draft. It makes no sense to draft a quarterback in what looks like a weak draft, and it makes no sense with the way Mills looked. We've been rough on Casario, Stephen. I, I would say just a little bit, but he may have nailed the most important position on the field with no first or second round picks. Well, and Robert, that's why I said, you know, I was cautious when when they did draft Davis Mills. I, I was cautious to be too critical because, look, you, you've got to evaluate a person at least over a season, really more than that when you're talking about the quarterback, especially if you're going to have a bunch of bargain bin guys around him. We tend to get a little bit impatient because it's not a big name guy or a guy that you know, it has had some kind of impact over a long college career. So the fact that, yeah, he was a third round pick, but he was the Texans first pick in this draft. I think you've got to give him more of a shot. And, you know, I, I guess the best thing for him is that it is a weaker draft when it comes to quarterback. So I think you can afford to give this guy another year and see what comes up. Do not forget that, the Houston Sports Talk podcast had Troy Clarity, who covered Davis Mills at Stanford, on right after the draft. And he told us, he said, this guy is going to be a good quarterback. And lo and behold, he's looking real good right now. <laughs> well, you know, and, and I think it pays to listen to the guys who cover in most cases. I mean, some of them may be homers, sure. But I, I think because I, I remember that interview, Robert, and I think he was as objective in his analysis of Davis Mills as, as anybody can be. And that's what at least gave me confidence. And a lot of fans, and I think even you, were <laughs> a little bit like, who is this guy? You know, when are they taking a chance on a guy that has so little college experience? But again, it just goes to show that, you know, when you draft a big name, doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're going to, you know, be big for you. And you draft a guy that you've never heard about or haven't heard too much about that that's kind of on the outside, and they can make some waves. So, 
you just you got to let them play and you got to see what you've got before you can make a true evaluation. If you didn't hear it, go back and listen to that interview with him. It's right after the draft. Really interesting. And it's worth worth checking out if you if you didn't listen at the time. And uh, he got me excited about Mills. And then I saw him and I was like, eh, I don't know. And then, you know, he's, he's Mills is slowly growing on me. That's for sure. Um, you, you and I typically, Stephen, don't talk much about Black Monday and the firing of the different coaches around the NFL, but Brian Flores' ouster has a huge impact on the Deshaun Watson trade talks. Ian Rappaport reported that much of Deshaun's interest in the Dolphins and much of Miami's interest in Deshaun had to do with Flores. The Dolphins' owner said on Monday he had no interest in pursuing Deshaun. A couple of quick thoughts on this. Uh, this is really interesting, Stephen, because number one, might be a good thing because Deshaun's no trade clause uh, is is in effect. So he now has to be open to potentially more than one location with Miami off the table. Number two, could Flores, where he lands, convince another team to hire him? Or, you know, could could he convince another team to hire him, basically, with the promise he can bring Deshaun with him, Stephen, should we root for Flores to be iced out so Deshaun may be open to multiple teams increasing his trade value? Yeah, probably so, Robert. I mean, here's the thing. If if a team has publicly come out and said, yeah, we're no longer interested in you, well, you know, Deshaun, I mean, you have the no trade clause, but you can't go to Miami if Miami doesn't want you. So it's gonna, you're going to be forced to basically go where the need is. And, you know, I, I even heard the other day, you know, with the Giants situation, you know, would they want to pursue Deshaun? So, I mean, that's the thing, Robert, is that, you know, we've, we've been talking about this for almost a year now. Well, another season has come and gone. And yeah, still some of the same teams are still in play, like the Denver Broncos, for instance, still needing a quarterback. But there are some others that are opening up. So I, I just think that every year you've got to reevaluate. And so does Deshaun. He's got to reevaluate. OK, what teams are interested in me? Where would I at least uh, mo- least want to go? And where would I most want to go? So yeah, the Brian Flores thing certainly changes things. And I think it's pretty obvious that he was the one who was, you know, so gung-ho about getting Deshaun. And now it looks like that's not going to happen for the Dolphins. It is absolutely amazing to me that we're in January and we don't seem to be getting anywhere with the direction that Deshaun and the court system is going. And we also are in January and... Deshaun Watson has yet to be suspended. There's never been discussion about that by the NFL. Discussion here in Houston, but beyond that, and it's weird because another team's going to have to just play a guessing game when they trade for Deshaun is, you know, how long will this suspension be and what's going to happen with Deshaun's case? And, you know, we're, st- we're still up in the air on all that. And it's, it's, it's what, uh, nine, ten months since this all started? Nine months? Yeah, something like that. And and Robert, honestly, and, and unfortunately, this is what the problem is, is that as long as this thing is not settled, teams are going to be reluctant because of the unknown factor. Now, I, I and, and I don't have any inside information, obviously, I'm just guessing here. But if he does end up settling with all of these lawsuits, I, I would say that it's a strong possibility that he's not going to get suspended. So that would leave room for teams to start vying for him. But, you know, how can you trade for a guy when Everything is sitting pretty much the way it was six months ago. I, I just that's that's going to be the the big holdup once again, the big sticking point in this whole thing. You know, you can't even start trying to make trades until mid March, so there's still what a couple of months. But I mean, this has dragged on and on and on, and you know, no charges have been filed. There, there's been no hearings. There's been no movement at all, and and that's a curious thing. I don't know if you can blame COVID on just the whole backlog of the court system or, or what it is. But unfortunately, that that's the problem. They just, you know, the, the big the elephant in the room that we're just going to have to keep talking about and, until the elephant disappears. What do you think the Texans could get if they traded Laramie Tunsil? And I kind of think it's going to happen. What can they get as far as compensation goes at this point? Well, I certainly think that they could get a high draft. Now, his contract is, you know, a, a big thing, obviously. But I certainly don't see why you couldn't get at least a second round pick for him. You know, left tackle is such a valuable commodity. You know there are teams around the NFL that need it. And and as the Texans did, some teams may have to overpay, whether it's with a draft pick or, you know, financially to get a guy like him. What about a Matt Schaub deal? Two seconds. A Matt Schaub deal. 
Yeah, remember he got uh, two seconds from the Falcons when the Texans traded for him. So uh, that's maybe the best that they can do. I don't know if they get a first-round pick unless somebody gets real desperate because his contract is now shorter. Now, I do think it could be possible if somebody were to say, okay, let's talk with Tunsil's agent like the Texans should have done and see if we can renegotiate an extension upon the making of that deal. Maybe you could get a first round pick. The one thing that hurts you with Tunsil is, you know, some injuries this year. This guy is not exactly known as a hard worker, as a practice guy. So there's some personal things that you worry about with him. But I guess that's the hope is somebody could say, all right, let's talk to his agent. We'll get a, a different deal on his contract. Well, yeah, I, I don't know that you would get a first round. That's that's why I'm saying I didn't say as high as a second round pick, maybe, you know, a third possibly. But I, I certainly think within the higher rounds that the Texans could get something for him based on the value of his position, if if nothing else. But yeah, there. I mean, there have always been some issues concerning Laramie, but, uh, you know, when he's healthy, he's still a, a very steady left tackle and, and certainly there are teams around the league that, that could use something like that. So I think, again, it just depends on what teams you're talking about and where he'd be wanting to go and, and just having that kind of negotiating power. But boy, if Nick Osario could pull off a first round pick, he, I, his stock in my mind as a general manager would certainly go up after that. We will leave the Texans, but not really. Uh, and you'll see where I'm going with this. Can I just say that Monday night was a good night for me as a sports fan, the bill Belichick of college football didn't win yet another national title and as h-town twitter was quick to point out neither did his offensive coordinator <laughs> yeah hey ob is what you're talking about and uh, yeah look i i mean i've gotten to where it's just hard for me to even watch the cfp final because it's it's alabama versus whomever almost every year now you know alabama hasn't won every championship you know clemson beat them once georgia beat them once it's not like they win every time but they're in it almost every time. So, yeah, great win for Georgia. You, you definitely, I mean, I certainly was rooting for Georgia just based on the kind of season they've had and the fact that, gosh, I don't want to see Alabama win again. But, yep, you can't ignore that fact that uh, Bill O'Brien lost. But you also can't ignore the fact, Robert, that now I guess he's looking for another NFL head coaching job. Do you think Deshaun texted him after the game and said, keep your head up? Bill, keep your head up. <laughs> keep your head up. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I'm even hearing things of maybe wherever Bill O'Brien goes, if, if he gets another NFL job, maybe that's where Deshaun goes. So, yeah, maybe they have been pretty tight texting each other after the games and so forth. And, and how dumb is Jags owner Shad Khan? He just had a self-centered, egotistical, overbearing jerk make his organization a laughingstock this season. And he decides, hey, Let's go interview a less successful version of that same guy to replace Urban Meyer. You know, that's the first thing I thought about, honestly, is when I'm hearing that Jacksonville is in the mix. I'm like, wait a minute. You're, you're talking about, I mean, Bill O'Brien may not have been, uh, you know, the off-field fiasco that <laughs> Urban Meyer was, but he was still Bill O'Brien and Tex Texans fans know him well. You know, there's something to be said of, you know, why you keep, everybody keeps thinking Jacksonville is going to be the next great thing. And they keep falling on their face. Well, you know, just like the Texans, it starts at the top and the decisions that are made and, you know, getting the right people around you or in their case, the wrong people. So, yeah, if they hire Bill O'Brien, then maybe that's a good thing for Texans fans, because then that means the Jaguars will continue to suck and, and the Texans have a chance. Oh, yeah. If you're a Texans <laughs> fan, you're like, you go get him, Shad Khan. Get that O'Brien guy. He's great. I think we should put out a campaign, you know, keep this thing going so maybe the Texans can have a better chance of getting back in that uh, AFC South race. Yeah, let's get it clear. Deshaun wants to be nowhere close to Bill O'Brien. Oh, no. I, I, I don't, don't think so either. I don't think that's a possibility. Before we move on from the NFL and football, I wanted to give you a shot, Stephen, to say a few words on the loss of maybe the NFL's biggest face over the last 50 years, John Madden. You know, David Hardesty and I spoke about him, but just wanted to let you have a few words as well. You know, I, I have to say, Robert, I was not a fan of John Madden, you know, because I started following football in the 70s. And I, as you know, and, and, you know, you were to some extent a big Oilers fan. And, you know, the Raiders were certainly known as, uh, you know, a, a team that were intimidating and a lot of people would call them dirty. And John Madden was responsible for that. But but let me tell you this. 
you know, you talk about a guy who was a successful NFL coach, whether you liked his style of play or not, he was successful. He was in the Super Bowl. And then he parlays a career in broadcasting. I mean, it's it's just it's as unrivaled as just about anybody. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to come up with a list of names of former coaches who could have maybe even a more successful broadcast career than they did an NFL career, if that's possible, especially with the success that John Madden had. And you know what I always appreciated about John Madden's broadcasting, and, and I did gain a lot more respect for him in that role, is that you know, he truly revolutionized the game. As far as when I say the game, I mean, I, I guess more the broadcasting industry by the way he did it. With the way he described the plays and made the fans feel like they knew what was going on, John Madden was a master at that. And, and obviously his personality fit the role so well. Clearly, this guy was an icon in the broadcast industry because he redefined it by his style, by his personality. You know, when you have a video game named after you as, as a broadcaster, well, there you go. You know you've made it, right? Not a video game, the video game. The video, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you you got all, all the respect in the world for John Madden. And there, there aren't too many teams greater than him and Pat Summerall when they did the games together. Yeah, you said his coaching was good. Uh, as far as I remember, he's still the winningest by percentage NFL coach with at least 100 games coached under his belt. But of course, a lot of people, you know, especially the younger generation doesn't remember that. People like you and I, Robert, that uh, grew up, you know, 70s, 80s, we, we remember John Madden as the coach of the Raiders. But, you know, most people have, have forgotten that, yeah, he's won a Super Bowl and he's he's been there. And, you know, of course, he was just known for the uh, dirty style of play. I hate to use the word, but it was what it was. I guess, unlike you, I don't think of him as the dirty guy, I think of Al Davis as the dirty guy more than anything. Well, I mean, it's a whole, I, I think it's a team effort, honestly. Uh, you know, John Madden wouldn't coach there if, you know, if it was certainly not going to be that side. I think he was a major part of that. And yeah, I don't like to think about that, but yeah, Al Davis certainly had his hands all over everything. We know that uh, just from the things that we've learned of those of us that followed him. But, you know, John Madden was a big part of that. You have to admit yeah, and, and also another thing that I, I failed to mention when I was talking with Hardesty about Madden, he was born in a little town called Austin, Minnesota. Yeah. And yeah. I've actually been there. My uncle has been living up there for a couple of decades. Madden left there when he was five, moved to California. But my uncle said Madden used to come back and visit family there pretty frequently. Austin is the home of the company Hormel. Hormel makes Spam, and Spam is about as blue-collar and middle American as Madden. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I, yes, I have heard of Austin, Minnesota, uh, not just because of John Madden. I, I don't remember the first time I ever heard the reference. But yeah, it's very interesting you know, where he's from and, and just how he developed. I, I remember, I think it was not long after he started into the television broadcasting in the early 80s. He wrote a book, Robert, and I remember reading it. It was a long time ago. And it was called, Hey, Wait a Minute, I Wrote a Book. Doesn't that sound like John Madden, a great title for a book? You could just hear John Madden saying, hey, wait a minute. I wrote a book. Boom. It should boom. have ended with boom. Yeah, he didn't. He should have put the boom at the end. I don't know if he developed it at that time or not. But yeah, just just what a, you know, a sad loss, certainly among many. Uh, but boy, you, you just you could not ignore whether you liked him or not. You certainly couldn't couldn't ignore the large personality that is John Madden. Well, Santa came a couple of weeks ago, and when he came, he took away Christmas presents from the Houston Cougars basketball team. They lose Marcus Sasser and Tremont Mark for the season. Stephen, unbelievably frustrating. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, what did uh, the Cougars or what did Kelvin Sampson do to earn coal in their stocking? I mean, I'm looking back, Robert, over the, you know, last season – the off season, I, I can't think of anything that they would have done, you know, to warrant this kind of thing. He had they they had Christmas presents on the tree, and all of a sudden they're gone. I, <laughs> yeah, it is sad, and it's it's a shame. I mean, there are guys that are stepping up. You know, you're, you're talking about Kyler Edwards has come in and played well, and some of the others. You know, they've had a, a number of injuries the Cougars have battled this year, and then you're you're starting to see guys who you've never heard of step up. 
And that's a good thing. I, I just wonder, you know, as we get deeper into conference play, and then, of course, as you get into the postseason, how much this is going to hurt the Cougars. But again, I know I, I keep saying this, but to me, it's in the coaching. Kelvin Sampson is going to have these guys ready no matter who's on the floor and no matter what the circumstances are. I think that's about the only thing we can hold on to at this point. They look like a legit Final Four team, and Sasser and Mark were the two most talented players Definitely your best go-to guys late in an NCAA tourney-type game. And Steven, it's almost more frustrating how good the Cougars have looked without them. It just shows how deep and talented this team is and makes me even more sure they had a legit shot to make another run. Well, that's certainly true, and, and they could have. And I, you know, you hope that those two guys... I mean, they could have certainly made the difference. Tremont Mark, you know, he never really came back from his injury this year. Kind of looked like he might, and then he didn't. You know, Marcus Sasser, he played quite a bit, you know, even through that injury before it finally got to him. But yeah, I just, I, I mean, I would like to have confidence that they could make another run at a Final Four, Robert. But, you know, anything can happen. I mean, college basketball is about to become as unpredictable, I think, as any sport. And if anybody could pull it off, it's Kelvin Sampson. So I'm going to hold on to that faith in, in, in that Kelvin Sampson, I know he's not on the floor, but that he's going to carry this team to another Final Four by just the way he's using the players that he has at his disposal. Yeah, you just can't say enough about the just unrelenting philosophy of defense and we do what we do on the defensive end, and that's going to put us where we need to be. And offensively, this team... You know, especially with Sasser and Mark, they were looking like maybe the best offensive team that Kelvin Sampson had uh, since he's been with the Cougars. I mean, that's what's really frustrating because you knew he was going to bring the defense and, you know, just they, they've always rebounded the ball. But I think this group, including guys like Carlson and Fabian White and, and some of the, they, they just look like the most talented rebounding team, not just the most unrelenting but this looked like the most talented rebounding team that the Cougars had and it's not like they've fallen off a, a cliff or anything like I said they're still winning games they're going to be good in the American Conference the conference is not that great and they're number three right now and in, in the Ken Palm rankings still yeah so I, I mean that's definitely the inspiration you want to hold on to and look Defense and rebounding is something that Kelvin Sampson has preached over and over. You know, I, I know in, in numerous games throughout the last few seasons that he's coached, even when the offense has been good, he has been critical. He's critical of his players. He's not he's, he's not shy about getting onto his players, especially when it comes to lapses in defense and in rebounding. But, you know, you, you certainly haven't seen that lately. And, yeah, I, I think what you, you said it, Robert. The AAC is not the strongest conference, so that can certainly help the Cougars get in the position they need to. And by that point, you know, once the postseason comes and they make the NCAA tournament, anything, uh, we all know the NCAA tournament, anything can happen. If the Cougars just strike it at the right time, play the right matchups, they very well could be in another run for a Final Four. I mean, I'm cautious about saying that, especially with all the injuries they've had this season. Well, I want to finish off with, and I, I don't mean to leave it on too sad of a note, but, you know, we, we, we do like to, talk a little bit about some of the passings a lot of times late in the show and it's usually sports related but Stephen it, it's like you and I leaving just killed off a bunch of celebrities all of a sudden <laughs> I guess uh, yeah we we started a trend that we didn't really want to start you know you're, you're talking about Betty White Bob Saget you know Ronnie Spector you know just recently uh, those are three that I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I know there were more. You can probably fill in some of those gaps, but Sydney Poitier is Sydney Poitier, yeah. That's there's another one. You're talking about with Poitier, it's one of the most not only best actors that's ever lived, but one of the most important actors that ever lived. And you know, so many of the people that we've lost, including John Madden, they, they their Q rating was off the charts. Everybody loved him, no matter who you were. Sidney Poitier, Betty White, they were all people that you were just universally beloved. And I, I want to talk a little bit about Bob Saget, because when the pandemic started, I started listening to his podcast and he started a podcast right about that time. It might have been a little bit before the pandemic or when the pandemic started. And one of the things that he did, which was really cool, is he would 
have people call him and leave a voice message uh, and say, you know, I, I, I might call you back, but here's a, a number for you to call where you can leave a voice message for, for, for me and tell me how you're doing. And people would call up and they would tell their story. And then in his podcast, he would call them up. And it was typically people that had lost one or more people in the pandemic that were close to them, or it was somebody working at a hospital that was dealing with what was going on and all the pressure and all the just awfulness that comes with that. And Saget was so uniquely able to talk to them because this is a guy that had been through so much tragedy in his life that it just, uh, it really made it because, you know, Saget lost a couple of sisters. He's done so much as far as charity work for his sister that was lost because of scleroderma and for, for that cause. And, and, you know, Saget was just the sweetest, nicest. When you read the tweets on Saget, that just, that's what came up is everybody liked him. Celebrities included, they were just talking about this was a kind, personable, real guy, not just funny, but somebody that you'd want to be your friends and friend. And I feel like I kind of lost the best friend because I was listening to his podcast, Stephen, every week. And I just I, I love the guy and of all of the losses. It was so personal. And I, I remember Saget when Norm McDonald died. He was really close to Norm and, and actually Bob Saget said they were texting the last couple of weeks and Norm said, I love you. And that was not like Norm to say that in, hmm. in a tweet or even in person. He wasn't a real mawkish guy. He would he would tell you that too. Norm would. But uh he told Bob he loved him and it's a, it was a great podcast where Bob talked about Norm and you know their families hung out together and they were so close and you know, losing those two guys, it, it just seemed like th they were still really young. Although Norm was, <laughs> Norm was like an old man from the time he was in his in his twenties, I guess. Uh, he was kind of this old man in a in a young guy's body most of his life. But uh, you know, they they weren't that old, and and just tremendously funny. You know, that's the, the, the thing that you just you, we will definitely remember them for. And the weird thing about Saget is, I mean, remarkable. Uh, not weird, but just remarkable that he had two top 10 shows in the ratings at the same time between America's Funniest Home Videos and Full House. And uh, you could probably go through the history of television and you can't find that. Yeah, you absolutely can, Robert. And I'll tell you, Bob Saget's death really, I think, shook me up more than any of the others over the, the past few weeks. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, as cute as the Olsen twins were on Full House, and, and I remember... You know, when when I first started watching that, my daughter was probably, I don't know, two years old. You know, every time she would see a small child, she would always say, baby, baby. And so every time she'd see the Olsen twins, she'd always call it baby show, baby show. But I'll tell you what, as, <laughs> as cute as the Olsen twins were, what I really liked was just the dynamic between Danny and Jesse, you know, obviously Bob and, and John Stamos. I, that that got me watching the show as much as anything. Just the 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 way the two played those roles, and Bob Saget. I mean, talking about a multi talented guy. I mean, he just listed everything he did, and I knew it. But just sitting here listening to you do that, man, you just you can't find too many people who do that as successful as he did. A stand up comedian, he had a successful podcast. You know, as you said, two top ten shows at the same time. Man, you just you don't see that kind of thing, and. You know, it's always nice to hear when so many other key celebrities weigh in about how likable and a nice a person is. You know, that, that always warms my heart, too, because I, I know, you know, there are some people who aren't as nice in the kind of industry that you and I are in, Robert, you know, sports and then in entertainment. But there are nice people. And Bob Saget was certainly one of them. And it just, yeah, that, that death, I think, of all the others over the last few weeks, I think shook me up more just because it was so unexpected for me. Yeah. Speaking of, of nice and kind, and, and this was more expected because she was 99, about to be a hundred years old, but Betty White and can't be a, a bigger fan of Betty White. I know our, our friend, Allison Footer, friend of the show was a huge Golden Girls fan. I texted her when Betty passed away and, you know, she texted me back about it and, you know, Betty, you know, as much as people remember her from whether it's the Mary Tyler Moore show or Golden Girls or Hot in Cleveland, one of the things that I love, I, I, I watched the old 
game shows, the, the 70s and 80s game shows. And Betty White was a superstar game show contestant. Just, <laughs> Stephen, she was yeah. so good. Well, I know. And, and uh, look, when you can keep going and being as successful as you are into your 70s, 80s, and in Betty White's case, into your 90s, some people just have it's. I, I hate to use the term it factor because, you know, what does that really mean? But Betty White had that it factor. I mean, it's obvious. And no matter, you know, whether you watched her or not, you know, like John Madden, everybody knows who Betty White is. Everybody knows who, you know, John Madden is. It When you can go across multiple platforms, regardless of what walk of life you're from, and you can know who these people are, you know, that's when you know you've made it. And I just felt so sad, I guess, you know, selfishly. It's like, oh, I want to see her turn 100. But <laughs> obviously it wasn't meant to be. Stephen, you and I have spoken because you did sports radio for a while. How, how long were your longest runs in a day? Would you do three, four hours in a day of sports radio? Uh, I, I want to say the longest I ever did a sports talk show was probably three hours. There were, you know, two to three hours was about my run now, I think, back then. Yeah, you talked about with me how, you know, that could be a pretty long time and it could be difficult to keep the conversation going and that sort of thing. And I, I was watching an old interview with Betty and, and if people didn't know this, you know, I, I kind of said on my Facebook post that when somebody gave you a television, you kind of felt like it came with Betty White and, and right. in a way it did because Betty White was there at the beginning of television and she talks in an interview about doing a local television show really early on and she would be on the air for, she said, five and a half hours straight. And this was five, six days a week and there's no way to record stuff back then. So you were doing live commercials and she said she was doing live commercials. She would do... And one, one day she said, I did 58 live commercial reads and you're just winging it. And you know, Ugh. Stephen, how tough it is to do just three hours of radio where you're not having to interact with the camera and you have recorded commercials to kind of cut things up. Well, yeah, first of all, um, I don't know how she ever had a voice left after, you know, each day of doing all that. Um, and, the, and the other thing, Robert, is, yeah, I thought three hours was tough, you know, trying to do a three-hour call-in show at a station that was brand new and you hardly got any calls. I mean, that, that was the biggest challenge for me, but that obviously pales in comparison, you know, to what people like Betty White had to do back in the early days of television. Yeah, that's, that's when you know that you've got some talent. When you're able to carry something like that and do it successfully, you know, at least at, at some point she must have been successful because she kept going higher and higher. But yeah, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And at least I had, you know, for me, I had the comfort of sitting in a radio studio where nobody could see me, whereas she's on video for five hours. You know, how do you, <laughs> how do you maintain your composure with that? I, I don't know that I could do that, Robert. I'll just be honest. She did have a help. You know, she wasn't doing it all by herself, but still five and a half hours a day. I mean, that's a long on. time. Yeah, that, that is a long time. But that's, that's pretty remarkable. One death that I think maybe people missed that, and I don't know if this is going to hit people that much, but people that are my age will remember this guy and your age, Stephen. Ross Browner passed away, and he was not tremendously old. Uh, Ross Browner, 67 years old, he died of COVID, and he played for the Bengals. A lot, a lot of people will remember that. Also, at Notre Dame, he was a first-round pick, eighth pick in the draft, Outland Trophy winner. Uh, UPI Lineman of the Year back in 76, won the Maxwell Award, the Lombardi Award, two-time All-American, a uh, pretty good NFL player too, and had a cup of coffee in 1985 with the Houston Gamblers. Yeah, I do remember the name. It took me a second, but yes, I do remember when he won the Outland Trophy. He was, he was definitely a force at Notre Dame. Don't have a lot of great memories of him. And of course, with the Gamblers, I didn't keep up with the Gamblers as much as I wish I had. But uh, yeah, I'd forgotten. He did have that uh, brief time in 85 with them. He was also the father of former Pittsburgh Steelers offensive tackle Max Starks. His brothers are former NFL players Jimmy Browner, Keith Browner, and Joey Browner. And his nephew, Keith Browner Jr., played for the Houston Texans. Oh, that's right. That's right. I don't know if anybody remembers that name, but uh, yeah, so... Ross Browner, if you missed it, uh, he died back on January the 4th. Kind of a under the radar, but a, a Houston gambler and the, the gambler's coach. Oh, I forgot. This hasn't this happened right within the last couple of weeks. So we haven't had a chance to talk about this is going to be 
Kevin Sumlin. Uh, yeah, I did see that. Very interesting. And of course, you know, the Gamblers reboot going to be a bit different than it was in 1985. But <laughs> yeah, Kevin Sumlin, a lot of people at A&M uh, not too happy with Kevin Sumlin, but you know, he did have a successful stint at UH. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. Well, it was a, it's a long show, but we had a lot to catch up on, Stephen. It, it was great to talk to you again about Houston sports. And, you know, me and you, I think, touched base a couple of times in the last few yeah. weeks. But it's the first time we've got a chance to talk a little Rockets and Texans and Cougars and all that good stuff. Same here, Robert. And, uh, yeah, we'll just uh, see what happens between now and next week. Maybe we'll be able to talk more definite about David Culley and Deshaun and hopefully have fewer deaths to talk about. That. <laughs> That'd be nice, too. Yeah, sure would. Uh, until next time. Have a great one, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.